Okay. Well, tonight uh, we're going to take just a quick little break in our study through the Gospel of Luke and looking at a Christmas message tonight. What can I say? I can't handle the anticipation. Just Christmas on the mind. You know, I remember as a little kid, it just seemed like there was an eternity, you know, the month of December, and, you know, you thought about it so much, and it just took forever to get here, and now as an adult, it's, you know, it's already here. It's upon us. Um, But excited to be able to get into the Word with you, though, tonight. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7, if you want to open up your Bibles there. Isaiah chapter 7. The message that we're going to be looking at is talking about Emmanuel, one of the names of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Emmanuel, of course, means God with us. And this is the very center of Christianity. This is at the very center of the Christmas story. Uh, This is what makes us different from every other religion, from every other pursuit or philosophy of man Though so many would have us believe that it's all basically the same thing. Some invisible God, some ancient book and strange practices and rituals. And whether somebody's coming from an atheistic view where they say, well, all religion is just sort of made up and it's used to control people, it's used to keep people in line, or whether it's coming from a universalist view that says, well, all roads lead to God and all religions are basically the same and they have some good things to teach. Uh, But what marks Christianity as being so different, and especially as we consider it here tonight, biblical Christianity, what the Bible really says, is that biblical Christianity isn't man's attempt to reach God. And when you really boil down other religions, when you really boil down the pursuit of men and women on this planet, that's what it's really all about, reaching God. Can I be good enough? Can I be spiritual enough? Uh, Can I reach this level of enlightenment? Uh, Can I do enough good in my life that's going to somehow outweigh the bad things that I do? And that's what religion is as far as human beings are concerned and what makes Christianity different. It stands alone. It says, no, you could never reach God. You could never be that good because the Bible doesn't tell us simply to try harder. Somehow people, that's the message that they've received. Oh, try your best, do your best. And as long as you're trying your hardest, well, then God's going to see that and God's going to realize that. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of the Bible is, well, no, you could never be good enough. God doesn't say, try your best as I'm trying my best. (laughs) He says, be perfect as I am perfect. And we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. The penalty for sin is death, which is separation from God. No, we could never reach God on our own. He had to come to us. He had to come right down and meet us where we're at. We could never reach him. Emmanuel. Uh, That's the Christmas story. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And of course, you have to take note, and this is what we're going to be really kind of zeroing in on this message here tonight, is you have to take note, when did he come? When did he come to us? Did he come to us at the pinnacle of humanity? Did he come to us because we were so good 
or we got our act together, or the world was doing so well, or the Jewish people as a whole, they were really pursuing after God and they were really seeking after their Messiah. Was that the state of the religious leaders of the days of Jesus? Was that the state of affairs with Rome and this world-dominating empire? Had we reached this high level of spirituality where God said, well, I have no choice. (laughs) They're just too good. I, I guess I have to go dwell among them. No, he came in a very dark time of human history. He came in a very violent time, in a very cold time, with all kinds of immorality and idolatry and all kinds of violence and and all of these pursuits of men and women. He came during a time where the religious leaders as a whole had become so corrupt. You know, it took foreigners coming from the east who were looking for the Messiah, and here were the religious leaders there in Bethlehem, and, oh, well, we know where he's going to be born, but no one really pursuing after him. That's when Jesus stepped into our world. He came into the middle of a cold, dark place where they would ultimately reject and crucify him. You might say that he came when we were least deserving. He came at a time where the world was in turmoil and darkness, and then this great light was given and God intervened in human history. And of course, the good news for us is not only did he come 2,000 years ago and he was born in a manger in Bethlehem and he lived and he walked among us, living a perfect sinless life that he might be a substitute for our sin, dying on the cross in our place and rising again from the dead. Not only did he do that 2,000 years ago, and that's certainly worth celebrating, but he's the same. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed And he's still Emmanuel. He's still the God who is with us. He's still the God who comes incredibly close. And he steps right into the middle of whatever we have going on. He doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up or get our act together. He'd be waiting for a very long time if he did that. But he steps right into the middle of whatever circumstances of life that we may be in. And you might be in the middle of a really great season with the Lord, and that's awesome, and that's good. Well, he's still Emmanuel. He's still the God who's with us. He's still the God who comes close, and he can renew and refresh and restore and just keep you on track. And if your eyes are on him, then hold fast to what you have. And Lord, meet with me. I want to continue to walk closely with you. But if you're going through a difficult season, if there's some battles that you're facing in your personal life or in your family or at work or whatever the circumstance may be, if you're going through some trial, if you're going through some difficulty, it might even be a bad situation that you only have yourself to blame for. He's still Emmanuel. He's still the one who will step right into whatever we've got going on. He meets us right where we're at. And he can forgive, and he can heal, and he can restore, and he can give life and his peace, and he can shine his light in this dark world. And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. I want to get into this passage here in Isaiah 7, but before we get to the section that's dealing with this prophecy of Emmanuel, I want to give you a little bit of the backstory and what's happening here. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, 
that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. So a few names that probably aren't ringing a bell. So let's just remind you really quickly of who we're talking about here. Ahaz is the king of Judah. He's the grandson of King Uzziah. Now, maybe if you're familiar at all with the book of Isaiah, maybe King Uzziah sounds a little bit familiar to you because it was in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, that's when I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah 6, this vision that Isaiah has of the Lord on his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God, and he has this incredible encounter, this incredible vision, most likely with Jesus himself on the throne. But we're told there in Isaiah 6 that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah was a godly king, and he reigned for 52 years. That's a long time to have the same government, to have the same leadership. This was sort of the pro of this system of doing things, this monarchy, which was really supposed to be a theocracy. The pro of it was you get a good godly king in there, and then he's set up, and he's establishing the kingdom, and he's doing everything according to God's will and God's plan. And there was some times of tremendous growth and prosperity and blessing under King Uzziah. And that was the case for 52 years. Of course, the con of that style of government is you get an evil king, you get a wicked king. Well, now you're stuck with him too. So you kind of live by the sword, you die by the sword. But King Uzziah, he was a godly king and he reigned for 52 years. And if you remember Right at the end of his life, there was some pride and kind of a tragic end, and he ends up getting struck with leprosy, and he dies, and it's this sad twist uh, to the end of his life. And it kind of throws the nation into some turmoil. Hear this king. Imagine, you're 40 years old, you've been in Israel during this time in Judah, he's the only king you would have ever known. And he was this godly king, this good guy, this strong leader that everybody looked to. And then right at the end of his life, blew it and falls into sin. And he's struck with leprosy and he dies. And so it throws the nation into turmoil. It probably threw Isaiah into some turmoil as well. And I do think it's significant. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. This earthly leader meets a tragic end and it kind of seems like, oh, all is lost and now what are we going to do? It's in that year that Isaiah is reminded, no, there's a throne that's above the throne of Israel. There's a king that's above the king of Judah and he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords and the whole earth is filled with his glory. And so in the year that King Uzziah died, that's when Isaiah had this vision. Well, now here, King Ahaz, this is the grandson of Uzziah. And between the two of them, you have Ahaz's dad, Jotham. Jotham was a good king. He was a godly man. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Though the one thing that you could have against Jotham is that he didn't remove the high places. And the high places was what would go on in the pagan practices and idolatry there within Judah. And so though Jotham doesn't seem that he participated in any of that and 
the temple and what was going on there in Jerusalem, that was all according to God's word. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but he didn't go and tear down these high places. He left that there. That's the one critique you would have of him. And that bears on to our story now because now his son Ahaz, he falls headlong into idolatry. Now, Ahaz can't do what so many in our culture do, is blame their parents, blame their circumstances. Well, what choice did I have? You see the environment that I've been raised in. No, you're responsible for your own actions. But certainly for Jotham, had he known that his son was going to fall into idolatry and sexual immorality and pagan worship and even offer one of his sons as a sacrifice to Molech. Can you imagine that? If Jotham knew that one of his grandsons would be offered to Molech, he might have tore down those high places. He might not have had the approach, well, you know, it's not a problem for me, and it's not really an issue in my life. You're the king of Israel. There's a responsibility that's been placed upon you, and certainly... There's a responsibility upon us as it relates to our homes and our families and what we allow to enter in and what we allow to take place. And so you have Uzziah, this godly king, he meets a tragic end. You have Jotham, a short reign, didn't remove the high places, but a godly man. And then you have King Ahaz. Now, if all we knew about King Ahaz is what we're reading here in Isaiah 7, We might actually think that he was a decent guy, that he was an okay king, but again, the truth of the matter is he was far, far from it. Uh, He had really embraced idolatry and allowed that to infiltrate even into Jerusalem, even into the temple. But he is the current king of Judah. Uh, Then you have Rezin, he's the king of Syria, And he's in an alliance with Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel. You remember, of course, at this time in their history, Israel has divided. You have the ten tribes to the north called Israel. You have the two tribes to the south called Judah. And so you have Rezin, the king of Syria, along with Pekah and Israel. They form an alliance together, and now they're coming and they're attacking Judah. They're attacking Jerusalem. And they're bringing this attack, but we're told there in verse 1 that they were not going to be able to prevail. Now we do read in 2 Chronicles chapter 28 that though they weren't able to prevail against Jerusalem, there was some 120,000 men of war of Judah who died as a result of all of this. There was another 200,000 that were taken away captive to Israel now, God raised up a prophet, and they, they were able to eventually return, but we don't know how many captives were taken to Syria. And so they come against Judah, against Jerusalem. They're attacking. They're not able to prevail, but there is really a huge blow here, and no doubt a big part of that was the fact that, again, King Ahaz, he's not a godly man. He's not seeking the Lord He's not relying on God for his help. He's worshiping these other idols and is involved in all kinds of pagan practices. And so there's some consequences to his choices and to his actions. But now here, these enemies are coming against Judah. And here's the really incredible part of this whole story. 
is that even though King Ahaz is wicked and God's going to deal with him and there are some consequences to his actions, at the same time, he is the king of Judah and God has made some promises and God has an established plan of the throne of David and the Messiah that's ultimately going to come. And there is, in a sense, here now the enemies of the Lord who are coming against Jerusalem. And even though King Ahaz has all of these problems and issues to work out, uh, God still does have a plan for his people. And so he sends Isaiah, and Isaiah tells him, hey, don't be afraid. Uh, This is all going to come to nothing. There's all smoke. There's no fire. If you look at Isaiah 7, verse 7, it says, Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, which is Israel to the north, will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established." And so here, this attack that's coming, this alliance between Israel and Syria, and they're coming against Jerusalem, God sends the prophet Isaiah to this wicked king. And he tells this wicked king, don't be afraid, don't worry, God's in control, God's on the throne, they're coming against you. He says there in verse 7, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. God says, it's not going to happen. 100%. It's not going to take place. Just like the nations today who think they're going to wipe Israel off the map. Just like the people today that say that the Jewish people, you know, they're going to cease to exist. God says, it's not going to happen. It's not going to stand. It's not going to come to pass. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is perfect, that every you know, person there in the nation of Israel and every decision that they're making, you know, there can be people that rise up that we like, there can be people that rise up that we don't like, but you have to acknowledge that them being regathered into the land, established again in the land, protected in the land, this is something that God is doing. God has done it. It's miraculous. And so someone who's trying to come against it, God would just say, it's not going to happen. It's not going to stand. It's not going to come to pass. And not only are these nations coming against Israel today, they were coming against Israel uh, back now in Isaiah's time. And just like there were people who they're operating from in their own flesh, and they're like, hey, we don't have to listen to the God of Israel, and you know, let's take over Jerusalem, and we'll establish our own king there. And they think they're doing their own bidding and their own plan. Really, the enemy's behind all of it. There's this satanic work, this satanic hatred. The enemy, he might be crazy, but he knows what God has to say in his word about Jerusalem, about the line of David. And so there's an attack that's going on here, And God says, it's not going to stand. It's not going to come to pass. There's no strategy. There's no plan of the enemy that's going to be able to thwart God's plan and God's purpose. God says, no, it's not going to happen. It's not going to be done. I'm not going to be overcome by the enemy. There's promises that he's made. There's a bigger story and a bigger picture at work here. 
in spite of this wicked king Ahaz, God is not going to allow the plans of the enemy to succeed. And yet at the same time, you have to observe and recognize the grace that's being offered to Ahaz. Isaiah comes to him and says, hey, don't be afraid. God has a plan. You can still turn to him. And he says something very important to him there at the end of verse 9. He says, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. On one hand, Isaiah is saying, 100% this is what God is going to do. Syria is going to come. Israel is going to come. They have these plans. They're going to attack. It's not going to stand. It's going to come to nothing. You're going to be able to overcome them. 100% that's what God is going to do. But then he says to Ahaz, but if you will not believe, surely you will not be established. So Ahaz, there's something that you can miss out on. There's a negative way that this could affect your personal life. It's not going to change the bigger picture of what God is doing and that he's going to fight for his people. But Ahaz, if you don't believe these things, if you don't turn to the Lord and trust in him, then you are not going to be established Now, unfortunately for Ahaz, we know from 2 Kings chapter 16, from 2 Chronicles chapter 28, what King Ahaz ultimately does is he puts his trust in the king of Assyria instead of the Lord. And he's going to empty out the temple and he's going to give the king of Assyria all of these treasures and tributes. He really becomes a servant to the king of Assyria. His name was Tiglath-Pileser. I don't know about that name, but Tiglath-Pileser was his name. And he really becomes a servant of Tiglath-Pileser and giving him all of these tributes and giving him all of this money and gold. And he even brings some of the altars that he saw there in Assyria back into Jerusalem and brings them into the temple. And he makes the priest offer these pagan sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem and just so fully bowing down and kissing this guy's ring and offering him all of these tributes. And here's a real shocker. It doesn't work out well. Here's a real shocker. In the end, Tiglath-Pileser burns him and doesn't come to his help and doesn't come to his defense. He puts his trust in the wrong person. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, he found it difficult to trust the Lord. He wanted to take more of the practical approach. It could be that he was just genuinely that deceived. Genuinely had no faith in the God of Israel. He just thought these pagan idols and these pagan gods were more powerful and that's what I really need to do. It could be that he was genuinely deceived. That he really thought that perhaps the the God of the king of Assyria, because of course at that point, the Assyrian Empire, they were the empire that was rising as totally dominant. They were the ones that everybody was afraid of. And so for Ahaz, he was like, oh, the Assyrians, if they were on my side, if I had them in my back pocket, oh, I wouldn't have to worry about anything else. And so it could be that he was genuinely deceived into thinking that. It could be that he thought he had gone too far. He was too far gone. 
that he was beyond any hope of forgiveness or redemption. And it is interesting how there does seem to be a lot of people who sort of have that attitude. And I don't know how real it is. I don't know how genuine it is. But there does seem to be a lot of people. And they say things like, well, you know, if I came to church, a bolt of lightning would probably strike me dead on the spot. You know, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. There's things that I'm ashamed of. And perhaps for Ahaz, Turning to the Lord and repenting, maybe in his mind, that meant dealing with all of this stuff that he was trying to bury. Offering your son to the god Molech. Hearing his son's screams to some pagan god. I would imagine that would be quite haunting. Was it easier for Ahaz to just stay in this stupor and try to convince himself, no, no, that's what these gods really wanted? Genuine repentance might mean having to deal with the fact that, oh my goodness, I was so far gone, I was so deceived, look at that. And so rather than dealing with that sin, and perhaps this thought of, I could never really be forgiven, I could never really have any hope of being changed. And of course, the reality is this, the enemy plays both sides of the fence, doesn't he? He's the one who tempts us in to rebel against the Lord. And then when we do, then the condemnation of the enemy comes. Oh, you're too far gone. Oh, God couldn't forgive you. Oh, I can't believe you said that. I can't believe if people knew what was really going on in your past, oh, you would never have a chance of redemption. When the reality is, if there's breath in our lungs, if there's a beat in our heart, there's an opportunity for us to turn. There's an opportunity for us to repent. Strangely enough, King Ahaz is going to have a grandson, and his grandson is Manasseh. I would have said King Ahaz was probably the worst king of Judah, except Manasseh really gives him a run for his money. His grandson Manasseh was the only king of Judah who didn't even try to pretend to worship the Lord. He just completely embraced idolatry. It would be Manasseh that would saw Isaiah in half. He was a pretty wicked, horrible person his entire life. Then at the very end of his life, as he's in an enemy's dungeon, literally no hope anywhere else, he prays and he cries out to God, Lord, would you save me? And God saved him. And there's this part of us as human beings, we almost don't even like that story. (laughs) Don't tell me that Manasseh is going to be in heaven. Don't tell me that he was really forgiven. And yet that's just the truth. We're all guilty. We're all sinners. We don't understand how offensive all of our sin is before the Lord. And if you cry out to him, he'll hear. If you cry out to him and repent, he'll listen from heaven. And so whatever the case for King Ahaz whether he's just genuinely deceived into thinking, well, God can't help. I have to step in and handle things. Or these other idols, these other gods are more powerful. The gods of the Assyrians. Or whether he thinks he's too far gone. For whatever reason, he doesn't trust in the Lord. And he takes matters into his own hands. And of course, it's easy to read this story and think, man, what a fool and how could he do that? And yet the reality is, I think to one degree or another, we all wrestle with, am I going to trust the Lord in this battle? Am I going to trust the Lord in this struggle that I'm going through, in this attack that I'm in the middle of? 
this trial that I'm trying to walk through? Am I really going to trust that God's going to come to my defense? Is He the one that's really going to fight my battle? Am I really putting it in His hands or do I want to take matters into my own hands? Do I want to do something more practical? And certainly... If you remove the Lord from the whole situation, King Ahaz is like, hey, this is simple. You know, know, Israel to the north, they've teamed up with the Assyrians. This is real simple. I'll team up with the Assyrians, the bigger, stronger empire, and then I'll be okay. On a practical level, makes a lot of sense. But he's not trusting in God to fight his battles. And I want to get to this prophecy uh, concerning Emmanuel. But just one last little thought here on the Lord fighting your battles and really trusting in him and allowing him to be the one who comes close and who comes near and and fights these battles. You know, in Isaiah chapter 6, I mentioned it earlier, as Isaiah has this vision of the Lord and seeing him high and lifted up, you remember what his response was in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. He said, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, up until that point, you hear Isaiah pronouncing all of these woes and judgment on the people. He comes into the presence of the Lord and he says, woe is me, for I am undone. And I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah says. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. You know, it's interesting. The Lord of hosts, we're talking about him fighting our battles. The Lord of the armies of heaven. Did you know that you won't see that title for God in the Old Testament law? You won't see it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In those first five books, you're not going to see that title, the Lord of hosts. You don't see it in Joshua. You don't see it in Judges. With all of those battles, with all of those armies, all those opportunities where, hey, the Lord of hosts is going to fight this battle, you don't see it in any any of those. It's not until 1 Samuel that you see it for the very first time, uh, there as Hannah is making her way into the temple to pray. Uh, Then it appears a few more times in 1 and 2 Samuel. You see it a few times popping up in the Psalms. But it's a title for the Lord that's almost exclusively used by the prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah use it more than anybody else. It's not even close. You know, over a hundred times that Isaiah and Jeremiah are referring to God as the Lord of hosts. And it's this title that the prophets really recognize God as being. He's the Lord of the armies of heaven. They're given this insight. Not only are they given prophecies concerning the future, Their eyes are opened up to this reality, this this armies of heaven and the spiritual battle that we're in and and this perspective that they have as a result of those things. Of course, you remember in 2 Kings chapter 6, when the king of Syria had come and was surrounding Elisha's home. And he's there with his troops and he surrounds where Elisha is and Elisha's servant is panicking and flipping out and, you know, what are we going to do? And Elisha says, oh, don't worry. There's more of us than there are of them. And of course, his servant is probably sitting there like, man, you have lost it. You've been out here alone in the woods too long. Like, I don't know what your deal is. What are you talking about? And Elisha says, Lord, 
open up his eyes that he could see. And, he, and the Lord opens up his eyes and suddenly his servant is able to see all of these, these horsemen and these chariots of fire surrounding the Syrian army. It was this perspective that Elisha had, that his eyes were open to these things and realizing, hey, no matter what we're going through, no matter what battle we're facing, no matter how overwhelming the odds might seem on the surface, you have to open your eyes to the spiritual perspective that, hey, the armies of heaven are here, that God is close, that he's the Lord of hosts, he's the Lord of the armies of heaven And he can fight our battles if we would believe will be established. That's what Isaiah pleads with Ahaz. If you will not believe you're not going to be established, Ahaz, you have to take this in. You have to see the situation with spiritual eyes. And unfortunately, Ahaz opts to just more operate on the human level, on the practical level, which was, of course, sliding into rebellion and sin. Not just practical, because he's going to bow down to this Assyrian king, and he's going to offer him all of this tribute from the temple, and he's going to embrace even more idolatry. And so it's causing him to compromise and sin. Now that's the backdrop here. Verse 10 of Isaiah 7 says, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah says to Ahaz, Go ahead, ask for a sign. God knows that you probably need it. You're clearly not displaying a lot of character or integrity. You're not a man of faith. You might be of the house of David, but you're certainly not like David. And so go ahead, ask for a sign. You probably need some kind of miracle to be able to believe these things. And again, what grace What mercy. Ahaz hasn't done anything to deserve this warning, to deserve this word. He hasn't done anything to deserve this offer. God comes to him and says, go ahead. I get it. You're a simple person. You're a worldly person. You can't see this through the eyes of faith. I'm going to help you out. Go ahead. Ask for a sign. Anything that you want. And here Ahaz, he says, well, No, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I'm not going to tempt the Lord. God is pleading with him to repent and to believe. And of course, somebody could be here, somebody could be listening to this message, and maybe just like King Ahaz, you feel so far away from God, you feel like there's things in your past, things that you've done that you're ashamed of. Maybe you've been lied to, maybe you've been deceived. Maybe you think you're too far gone, and here God is pleading with you to be reconciled, to receive Jesus, to receive what he accomplished for you on the cross and his blood that was shed, the price that was paid, pleading with you. Isaiah responds to him and says, you know, it's one thing to weary men. Will you weary God? 
There comes a point, there comes some line, and I don't think any human being can know when it is, but there comes some line that we can cross where God's not going to strive with us forever. But here is God pleading with Ahaz to, to reason with him. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And I'm pleading with you to turn and to repent. But Ahaz says, well, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And it almost sounds spiritual, doesn't it? Actually, he quotes probably the same verse that Jesus quoted in the wilderness when Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That's from Deuteronomy 6. And so here Ahaz quoting scripture, sounding spiritual. But of course, it's not tempting God if you're doing what he's told you to do. God is telling Ahaz, no, go ahead, ask for a sign. So this wouldn't be tempting the Lord. So he's misapplying this scripture And the reality is, is he doesn't want to believe. He doesn't want to be convinced. Isn't that interesting? How many people say, well, you know, sure, I would believe if I saw a miracle. You know, if I saw something miraculous, if God gave me some sign, then I would probably believe. A lot of people have that mentality. Here was King Ahaz, and God kind of calls him to the carpet. He's like, okay, go ahead, ask for a sign. Ask for a miracle. I'll do anything. And, well, no, I don't want to tempt the Lord. I'm not going to ask him for such a thing. The reality is is sometimes people use it as an excuse, but they don't really want a sign. They don't really want to believe. They want to stay ignorant so that they can, can continue in the lifestyle that they're in without any sense of conviction or wrongdoing. And so Ahaz says, well, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And he says, well, okay, then here, O house of David... Verse 13, now this is extending beyond just Ahaz. He says, O house of David, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You know, one of the things that you discover as you go through and study the prophets is that oftentimes there were both near and far fulfillments. And I think that's true of this prophecy that's given here in Isaiah 7.14. He's speaking to Ahaz. He's speaking to this very specific situation. He says, the Lord is going to give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There was a way that that applied right then and there, but of course had a greater fulfillment that would happen in the future. You see that throughout the Bible. You know, if you read through Psalm 22, Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, and it had meaning, it had significance to him and what he was going through in his life. Psalm 22, of course, starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? That meant something to David, and yet that was directly quoted by Jesus on the cross. It it meant something in his time but it had a future fulfillment. And of course, that becomes crystal clear as you go through Psalm 22. It's Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22, he says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. They pierce my hands and my feet. And so you go through that Psalm and clearly it's speaking of Jesus on the cross and yet it had immediate significance and application to David's life as well. And so it's the same thing here in Isaiah 7.14. As you go through the rest of Isaiah 7, it's clear that God was speaking to that situation, that there was going to be a child that was born. His name would be Emmanuel. And before he moved on to solid food, 
all of this attack was going to be brought to nothing. So within a period of a couple of years. So there's a word to Ahaz that even though he didn't ask for a sign, well, God's going to give you a sign anyways. And this child is going to be born, and you're going to know that within a few years, God is going to bring deliverance. But of course, we recognize that this had a much greater application. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And we don't have to really speculate and wonder. Uh, We're told specifically when the angel was speaking to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, it says, So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, for our purpose here tonight, I just wanted to consider the fact that God is so good and he comes near even when we don't deserve it, even in our brokenness, even in darkness, even when there was sin or rebellion, he's Emmanuel and he comes close. So we don't have a whole lot of time to consider all of the intricacies of this verse You know, of course, there are some people who say, well, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That word virgin in Isaiah 7, it's the Hebrew word Alma, and it could just be talking about a young woman. Doesn't necessarily require this miracle to have taken place. It could just be saying a young woman, and maybe they would say in the immediate fulfillment there for King Ahaz, perhaps, you know, that is what's being said, and So it could just be talking about a young woman. And yet, obviously, you know, you go through some of those arguments and all of the times that that Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament, it's always talking about a literal virgin. There was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was translated into Greek, and it was done 200 years before Christ. And when that Greek translation, the Septuagint is what it's called, Uh, When they translated that, the word that they used for Alma is the Greek word parthenos, and parthenos is always virgin. It's never translated just as a young woman. It's always talking about a virgin. That's the word that's used there in Matthew chapter 1. Behold, the virgin, the parthenos, will conceive. And so clearly what the Bible is saying is there was some application to King Ahaz and what was going on in his day, but the real fulfillment, is the virgin will conceive. That there's going to be this miraculous birth. And it's important that we understand that and we get that because Jesus needs to be fully God and fully man. And so if he was born the same way into this world that all of us were born, we've got a problem. David said in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. And so if Jesus was born the same way that you and I were born, well, then he would have been born with a sinful nature. No, the virgin birth, this miraculous birth, he wasn't born with that same sinful nature that he could be a sacrifice, that he could be a substitute for our sin. That Jesus could live this holy, sinless life and then die in our place. That we could be treated as if we lived that sinless life. Jesus was treated on the cross as if he lived our life, so that we could be treated as if we lived his. And so he's fully God, 
He's fully man. But I like getting into some of that backstory. I like looking at those days of Ahaz. Even though he was this wicked king, even though that the nation was sort of falling apart and idolatry was being brought into the temple and he wasn't listening to the warnings of the Lord and following after the king of Assyria and these pagan gods and this dark backdrop. This dark backdrop, that's when the prophecy was initially given, the Lord is going to give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That's when the prophecy was given. And then Jesus arrives on the scene, and really not a whole lot's changed. It's still a dark backdrop. It's still a nation that's rebelling against the Lord. It's still filled with sin and violence and immorality. And yet he came. He's the one who comes close to us and meets us right where we're at. And so again, you might be in the middle of a joyful Christmas season, and that's awesome. That's wonderful. Well, he's Emmanuel. He died in your place. He has a plan for your life. He's present with you. He gives you joy. He gives you peace. And so you say, okay, Lord, meet with me, and I want to keep on following after you. But you could be in a difficult season You could have a lot that you're facing. You could have a lot of issues going on in your family. Maybe some things that are looming ahead this Christmas season that can be a little daunting and overwhelming. He's Emmanuel. He's the God who steps right into the middle of whatever we have going on. And it's not because we deserve it. It's not because we earn it. It's just the goodness and the grace of God in our lives. And he wants to come close and meet with each one of us. Amen? We'll stop there for tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and powerful. And we do pray that it would pierce into our hearts and to our minds. God, I just pray for each person here tonight, each person listening to this message. Lord, I do ask that you would draw them close to yourself. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone like King Ahaz, who's just far from you, for whatever reason, stumbled into this place or listening to this message, God, I just pray that you'd meet with them, speak to them. Lord, if they're deceived, if they've been following after the things of this world, that you'd open up their eyes so that they could see and understand. If they think they're too far gone, God, I just pray that you would call out to them and in your grace and in your mercy, draw them to yourself, Lord, that they could turn, that they could repent, that they would hear your voice pleading with them that though their sins be as scarlet, that you could make them as white as snow, that as far as the east is from the west, that that's how far you can remove our transgressions from us. Lord, I just pray for anyone here tonight in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a tough situation. God, I just pray that they'd be able to put their faith and trust in you, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven, that you would come near, that you would draw us close. We thank you for your presence here tonight. We just ask that you'd fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. We want to glorify you. Help us to be witnesses of your life and your death and your resurrection. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.